The scripture for today's sermon comes from Acts 17, 29 through 33. The word of God speaks to us. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This is God, the word of God speaks to us. Sis. Hey, Merry Christmas. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. I see some new faces that I haven't had the chance to meet. And so if this is one of your first times at Frontline, uh, we're really thankful you're here with us. Um, I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, this is a time of year that we really slow down and um, not only give and receive gifts from one another, but are invited to look and wonder and grow in gratitude for the gifts that you give us. And we recognize in this moment, being here together is a gift. Your word is a gift. Being able to sing songs with one another, over one another, to gather one another, with one another, these are all good gifts from a perfect father. And so we, um, we are grateful and we receive all the gifts that you have for us in love and gratitude, and we pray that we would just really savor your generosity towards us and that we would take hold of everything that you have for us this morning and uh, help me help my friends see good news for us today. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen. One reason we love Christmas so much is because it has a way of like stirring up hope We all have hope all the time, but there is certainly some aspect of this season, and as we reflect and celebrate, or reflect upon and celebrate Christmas, that it's as if, you know, there's somebody blowing on the embers of hope in our hearts, and it stirs, and and it catches a fire. And that's because deep down, what happens this season is we're aware of longings that we have, particularly we're aware of longings that we have for the world. We talk a lot about peace on earth. We talk a lot about homecomings. And so what we all, regardless of what we believe, what we all share in common, I would present, is that we all have a longing that the world would be set right, that the world would be a place of justice and kindness and safety. The world would be a true home. We all long for a better world because we all agree that in real ways, the world isn't as it should be. You just dip your toe into a news cycle and you hear week in and week out that there are wars and divisions and poverty and sickness and rampant confusion about truth and racism and drug crises and and slavery even today in 2023 persists. I was reading an article recently that talked about on the high seas, on on ships out at sea, there's an estimated 100,000 people experiencing forced labor right now. We all agree that the world is not as it should be. We hope for a better world. 
So where do we find solid ground to stand in hope? And as it relates to that question, that's why Advent is such a gift to us. Advent is a season where Christians remember and express the hope that we carry in us. Advent is an intentional season where the church not only prepares to celebrate, prepares our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but it's more than that. It's not like we just suspend reality and pretend like we're waiting on Jesus to be born right? We have longings, but they're not longings for Christ to come for the first time. We celebrate that that Jesus was born, but Advent is more than that, which we've been focusing on. We also look forward during Advent in hope to the second coming of Jesus. And that's a historical approach to this season in the calendar of the church, that we would take hold. I, I keep on thinking about it like almost like a guitar string, like we're tethered on one side to the, to the first coming in hope and we're wrapped around in, in longing the second coming and there's a tension there. And in, in the, the beauty of that tension, there's an opportunity to resound, to ring out in something beautiful. See, the second coming is the promise that God will bring about a perfect and new world at the return of Jesus. A world where things are what we long for the world to be, right as they were meant to be. And all throughout the scripture, this second coming in the Old Testament and the New is referred to as the day of the Lord, sometimes simply the day. And an integral part of the second coming, the day of the Lord, is what theologians refer to as final judgment, the final judgment. Now, we just lit to, to celebrate Advent, the candle that represents joy. And if I remember correctly, um, we've already lit candles that represent what hope and peace as we've celebrated Advent. That Advent, that means I guess next week we'll light the candle of love, and then on Christmas Eve we'll light the Christ candle. And the church has been lighting candles on Advent for a long time. But Hundreds of years ago, the candles that the church lit did not represent love and joy and peace and hope. Particularly in the, in the Middle Ages, that, that long ago, hundreds of years ago, Advent candles that were lit represented death and judgment and heaven and hell. Strikes us as super weird, right? Nobody has like a, a mug that says heaven, hell, and death and judgment with some holly on it as we reflect on, you know, the joys of Advent season. Although, if you're thinking about a gift for me, I would take that. <laughs> but the reality is like maybe, just maybe, we've thought about those things wrong, especially judgment. The modern people, even modern Christians, I myself can relate to this, that we can hear the word judgment or a message of judgment or even the, the biblical reality of a final judgment and our reaction, our natural knee-jerk reaction to that might be one of trepidation or nervousness or even cringe. We can feel in our hearts like a flicker of embarrassment at the idea of judgment because in this moment in history, Judgment is not particularly popular. Many of the ultimate, to many of the ultimate attributes somebody can have is to be non-judgmental, and yet in a weird way, don't we live in the most judgmental times ever? 
So there's this double-mindedness about a, a repulsion towards judgment, yet at the same time, everyone is severely judging others all the time, and it's all relative, and there doesn't seem to be any insight as to what's true and what's right and what's fair. And all this to say, we might be tempted to shy away from talking about the final judgment. But this is what it comes down to. And this is why this is actually a really appropriate topic, (laughs) even at Advent, especially at Advent. We can't hope for a better world without judgment. Fleming Rutledge, I told y'all that I've been reading her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. And she says this simply, Advent requires us to think about judgment That theme that we scorn and and disdain and omit and gloss over throughout the year. Because judgment is, is about God bringing about the world that we long for, a world that's right and good and kind and loving and beautiful, a perfect world... That longing has to to look and reflect and embrace judgment because judgment is all about God confronting all the things that stand in opposition to that perfect world. And in this confrontation of those things, he's bringing an end to them forever. And so today is going to look a little bit different in a sense. Like you guys are used to me probably having three points or, or multiple points. I wanted to have like three points that were an acronym for joy and you guys would remember it. I just have one point this morning, right? One point is Advent invites us to long for judgment. Advent invites us to long for judgment. Knowing this, the Apostle Paul When he preaches the gospel, he doesn't shy away from talking about the final judgment. So in light of that, let's look at the context of of Acts 17. Now, Acts 17 is recording a time in the Apostle Paul's ministry where God is using him powerfully to, to bring about saving faith in people and to plant churches all around the Greek world. But he has found himself, just a long story short, he has found himself unplanned on his part alone in the city of Athens, this thriving city, this bustling city, this city known for, for its religiosity and, and its ideas and its... its um, embracing of discussion and debate. And so Paul finds himself waiting on his friends, Timothy and Silas, his ministry partners, but he has had to go ahead of them to the city of Athens. And so he's alone in Athens. And Paul is is not the type of man to, when he's in a new city, stay alone in his hotel room and just flip through the channels. He is going to get out in the streets and take in Athens and, and learn the culture and engage the people. And as he does, Acts says this happens inside of Paul. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul is, is walking around Athens, engaging, Athens engaging in conversation, and Paul, he has, he's a man who has received grace unmerited favor. Paul was uh, in opposition to the church. His mission in life was to, to snuff out the church, and, and Jesus found him, revealed himself to him, saved him in grace, not because of anything Paul did. Paul was a villain, but because of how good Jesus was, Jesus saved Paul, and then Paul has experienced and been transformed by the love of God. So now Paul loves God, and Paul really loves 
people. And so when he walks around the city of Athens, he can't help but have his heart broken to look at people made in the image of God, people who Jesus loved so much he died for, giving their worship, giving their lives and allegiance to dead, demonic, fake gods in the form of idols. This is unworthy worship that's happening in the city of Athens. And so Paul begins to engage people in conversation and begins to proclaim the gospel and people take notice. And so Paul is brought to this place that it's like kryptonite for me to say, the Areopagus, I believe. It's, uh, I'm going to screw that up later if I got it right now. The Areopagus. It's, it's known as uh, the Hill of Ares, the God of War. Or if I want to just make it easy on myself, Mars Hill is another word for it. It's this place in Athens that was considered a sacred place. And it was a, a place that a council meant that had a, meant that had authority in the city. And so Paul is brought to this so-called sacred place in Athens, this Mars Hill, this place where war is worshipped. And he's put before this council, and in a beautiful, ironic way, Paul's going to wage war on the powers of darkness and the powers of idolatry that rule and reign in Athens. Let me read to you what Paul has to say. Scripture records it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So let's pause right there. The, the people of Athens were so bought into idol worship and, and worshiping different gods that they just wanted to cover all their bases. And they're like, in case we've forgotten a God, you know, that we don't know yet, let's just kind of make a stand-in idol and, and just, just to make sure that we're not forgetting anybody. And Paul's going to actually use that as a, as a launching place in his proclamation of the gospel and said, actually, you've forgotten the one God who matters because all these other gods are dead and he is alive. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul, as a really loving missionary, is using the people of Athens, their own poets, their own philosophers, quoting them back to them, just help them understand, yes, that, that you are created. You guys have got it backwards. The way that you view life and divinity, the way that you view God is upside down and wrong and backwards. Don't worship gods who are idols you made. 
Worship the one true creator, God, who made you. And it's just a a helpful reminder for our hearts in this moment to to recognize that idolatry isn't a 2,000-year-old ancient Athens problem. It's a 2023 Edmond, Oklahoma problem because we all are tempted to and struggle with worshiping things, meaning we we find our ultimate value. We count them, we, we count on them for our salvation. We get our identity and meaning and purpose, not from the God who made us, but from gifts that he's given us. But we twist those gifts and we make them our ultimate, and we, we put our hope and our life, and we live for those things, things like money or comfort or prestige, places that we want to go to, status that we think we need to have to have abundant life. And Paul says, stop worshiping idols. Worship the one true God. Why? Paul's answer surprises us. Verse 30, The time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We might look at Paul proclaiming the gospel here in Athens and, and hearing him share the message of Jesus for the first time. And if we're honest, we might flinch and be like, oh, you're just going to go right to final judgment, Paul. Like, isn't there another emphasis you could make? Like, this is the first time hearing the gospel. Why are you going to final judgment? Can't you, can't you bring up some other aspects of the good news of who Jesus is? And we question Paul's missionary credentials, Right? But think about this, though. What did Paul know? What was the Spirit doing through him? If we desire a world that Christmas holds out for us, if we long for peace on earth, again, we have to desire judgment. We long for evil to not go unchecked. For a world to be made right, someone with power and authority has to deal with what makes it so wrong. That's the truth that Paul knew. That was the longing in the hearts of the Athenians. There's a theologian um, that I really love and appreciate named Barry Cooper. And uh, he was explaining the good news of the final judgment, and he used this illustration that really stuck with me. And he, he brings up a moment from a book called Schindler's Ark. Schindler's Ark, obviously the inspiration of the movie uh, that Steven Spielberg directed, Schindler's List. The book, Schindler's Ark, is by Thomas Keneally. And there's this really dark moment in the book. It's historical fiction, but it's a reflection of real things that actually happened in human history. It's about the Holocaust. And there's this moment in the story of Schindler's Ark where Nazi SS guards are committing atrocities in the streets, out in the open. And specifically in the book, there's this moment that the hero, Oscar Schindler witnesses, were really in an open and merciless way, a mom and a son are killed by these guards. And the murder shocks Oscar Schindler, but what also deeply disturbs him is just the blatant boldness and openness that this evil is taking place. 
He's bearing witness to it. There's people all around, and there's the story tells specifically a young girl in a, dressed in red that he notices. And the story goes on to say this, quoting from the book. Later in the day, after he absorbed a ration of brandy, Oscar understood the proposition in its clearest terms. They, the SS guards, they permitted witnesses, such witnesses as the red toddler, because they believed all the witnesses would perish too. In other words, what these men practicing wickedness believed is that they were above judgment. That there was no one with the power to check any of their actions. There was nobody with the authority that could say anything about what they were doing. In their wicked power, they crushed the vulnerable and they couldn't imagine a higher power crushing their their wickedness and their abuse of authority. They couldn't believe a, a higher authority could come in reckoning and this little red girl was allowed to see because she would eventually meet the same evil fate that they were perpetuating. They believed in no judgment. And the point that Barry uh, Barry Wise made for me, um, or Barry Cooper, excuse me, made for me, and and why he used this illustration that stuck with me in a way, and why I share it now, is that it's just a picture into the brokenness of the world, and and it, it helps us long for judgment, because if scenarios like that are true, and if the world is broken to that degree, when we think of the final judgment not being negative or fearful, we need to, to look at it as good news, meaning that, that the message that the world doesn't matter is wrong. The message that evil goes on perpetually unchecked is not true. The, the worldview that, 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 that evil will not have to give an account is not what the Bible holds out to us as a promise. That all of this isn't just a cosmic accident. When you close your eyes to open them again to see reality, when you feel your heart beat, when you feel the breath in your lungs, when you slow down long enough to to consider the big questions about meaning and purpose and why we exist, the Bible doesn't say the answer to those questions is that we're a cosmic accident and might makes right. That's not the story of God's universe. The story of God's universe is that there is a creator who has purpose, who, who will bring an account to evil who will bring justice. And we long for that final judgment because we long for what is broken to be made right. Something is imprinted on our souls that tell us ultimately one day evil will have to give an account. Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, equity, totally fair, by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This day, the second coming is assured because the first coming didn't end with a death. It ended with a resurrection. This man has authority to bring judgment because this man has beaten death. This man is Jesus Christ, Son of God. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. 
And Paul tells us here, as he tells the Athenians, like many places throughout the New Testament, that the final judgment is brought about through the return of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at the second coming. Part of our hope and faith is that Jesus is going to one day return in judgment. And in the Gospels, Jesus himself promises this again and again. In passages and chapters like Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about coming in power, coming in glory, coming with an army of angels along his side, following his lead, and he comes to divide people. The final judgment, he will divide the righteous from the unrighteous. He will divide the, the prepared from the unprepared. And Jesus says that some will go on to everlasting life and others will go on to everlasting judgment. And at his second coming, he will bring his kingdom forever and sorrow and oppression and injustice and Satan and even death itself will come to an end. That the day of the Lord, the final judgment, is a reckoning where like the beginning when God brought life and order to chaos upon the second coming, he, he brings a reckoning and beauty and life in the, in the midst of the chaos of this broken world as it is. All will be made right and he'll restore order and paradise in the garden. What we were meant to experience, where we were meant to live will be returned for those in Christ Jesus. See, the final judgment is good news and it's a crucial part of what we believe as Christians So when Asher and Sam and Bryce were baptized at the very center of that creed that we recited together, this this summation of the doctrines of the church, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. Those are all things that we talk about often, and yet the creed doesn't end there. There's more essential things for us to hold on to in hope. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The final judgment is a crucial doctrine to what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And this is Paul's message to the people of Athens. It's Scripture's message to the people of Edmund that ultimately God will raise everyone to be judged on this final day. And those who have rejected and rebelled and ignored God will face judgment of punishment. And those who have received Christ and received the free gift of grace and and worshiped Jesus as our King will not receive punishment, but will receive the judgment of reward. As Paul says in Romans, that there's there now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's message to the Athenians. And and so how did they react? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. I love that we actually have names here, even though they're hard to pronounce. This is real history, right? Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman whose name was Damaris, and, uh, and, oh, and, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That this proclamation of the final judgment, that there are people in glory today that heard that message and responded in faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. See, some mocked Paul. Some were interested in hearing more. 
And some believed and put their faith in Jesus, the just judge and king who offers forgiveness to all who come to him in faith. So that's a question Advent puts before us regarding the final judgment. What about us? How are we going to respond to this message? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what I would ask you to consider. That this isn't just like a cosmic brokenness in the world and and, an epic distant reality that we can point to other things outside of the world as to why the world isn't as it should be. That if we're real honest with ourselves and scripture affirms this, that each and every one of us have personally, personally contributed to the brokenness of the world that we all have a part in breaking God's creation, that we hurt it because we hurt others first and foremost. We break break peace with our pride. We break purity with our lust. We break love with our hate and anger. We break charity with our greed. We've wounded each other. Every human has beauty, We carry the very image of God, the Imago Dei. But every human also has brokenness. We've sinned, we rebel, we reject God. Scripture tells us in a book written to uh, the early church, a letter called Romans, that no one is righteous, no human is righteous, not one person, that we all fall short of righteousness, that we all deserve just judgment because we've all had a hand in breaking the world. So what hope do we have? If the line of right and wrong doesn't separate us from others and we're good guys and bad guys, but as Fleming, Fleming Rutledge says in her book, the, the line that separates good and evil actually runs through our own hearts. That we're a part of the problem, then how do we escape a reckoning of justice to make the world as it should be? If we're a part of the problem of what's broken in the world and we long for the world to be made right, what does that mean for us? We can long for the second coming of Jesus if we've been changed by the first coming of Jesus. Christmas means that Jesus became human while continuing to be God, that he lived a perfect life that no one could. His life was the one life that was beyond any judgment, perfect obedience and love. And yet the judgment that we deserved, he freely took on. He received judgment on the cross. He was put out of the presence of God so we could be brought in to the presence of God. He took on pain so we could have peace. See, our only hope for the second coming of Jesus is the first coming of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus was born and, and died and rose again, and in him we have new life, we, we not only can, but we must then long for him to come again in final judgment, knowing that because of his work, that judgment isn't for us, but we've been forgiven freely. But if we're a follower of Jesus, what does that mean for us? I think there's a few things we're invited to consider quickly. The final judgment really implores us to forgive. We can't hold on to unforgiveness because we trust that God will ultimately, in the final judgment, address all wrongs. It's a a personal story that I always think of. 
and it relates to my grandfather, my mom's dad. He was a, a hero of mine. And I covered this with my mom yesterday just to make sure I had all the, the details relatively right. And uh, my mom was discussing with her father, my grandfather, um, when he was in his 70s, th- his experience with faith and when his faith began. And he told her a story he had never told before. And my mom knew some of the details, but she didn't know the full story. And the full story was uh, my grandfather lived in the 60s and the 70s in Venezuela. He worked in oil. And there was a day in Venezuela where he was, he was assaulted and robbed violently, pistol whipped severely, was in the hospital for days, had to have a metal plate put in his head, just violently attacked. But my grandfather grew up without a dad. He got his sisters to sign him over to the Marines when he was 17 years old fought in the Pacific, on the beaches of Iwo Jima. He was laconic and, and stoic. He didn't talk a lot about any of that. He didn't talk a lot about much. <laughs> uh, he was the boxing champions of his battalion in the Marines. All that to say, he was not a man that you would probably want to trifle with, and he wasn't necessarily scared of a fight. In Venezuela in the 60s and 70s was a bit like the Wild West. And so when he recovered and got out of the hospital, he set it upon himself to go seek justice. And part of the story is that the man that that robbed him had red hair, which is really unique among Venezuelan men. And so he just began to ask around if anybody knew a man with red hair. And so he um, sought the man out, found him, for lack of a better word, stalked him got his schedule down, and found the perfect moment to bring recompense. And my grandfather's story was that when he was mere steps away from entering into the home where this man was by himself, and I don't know what his intentions were fully, but they weren't good, that answering the question of his daughter, hey, where did your faith begin? That a step away from that door In a way that seemed almost audible, my grandfather heard a voice that said, vengeance is mine. And so it stopped him in his tracks, and he turned away. And what God in his grace shared with my grandfather in that moment, who was not a believer at the time, who was not familiar with Scripture, was truth rooted in Romans 19. Because there is a final judgment. Christians should never seek to avenge ourselves. But we can... Follow the guidance of Scripture that we can leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we're wronged, we can trust God with our desire for justice. Wayne Gruden, who wrote uh, Systematic Theology, he wrote this great, concise book called Christian Beliefs. He says this We can be confident that the punishment due the offender will be executed. It will either fall on the shoulders of Christ or on the shoulders of the offender for all eternity. So as we reflect and long for the final judgment as Christians, one of the ways that we can respond to that is is ask the Holy Spirit to reveal places in our heart that we're not trusting Jesus to be the good judge and we feel like we're holding on to unforgiveness because we feel like we need to be the ultimate judge. The final judgment for the believer means that it motivates us to live in obedience Quickly, like, we can't earn our salvation. That's given freely in grace. Yet scripture again and again talks about how when we live in obedience and we respond rightly to grace, 
that we will be rewarded for that. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about fasting and giving in a way that when it's done in secret, there'll be a reward waiting for us. And, and uh, uh, Pastor Ryan preached in 1 Corinthians 13, this passage that says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. Jesus himself in Matthew 16 says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person for what he has done. And Jesus again in Revelation 22 says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. So it's, it's wrong to believe that our good works earn our salvation and good merit before Jesus. That's, that's fully and 100% the work of Jesus. But it is also true that when we go about the good works that God has planned for us, when we live in such a way that we reflect the values and the ethics of the kingdom of God, that we give generously and we love lavishly and we obey our king, that scriptures promise again and again is that our king has a reward and rewards waiting for us upon the final judgment. And then lastly, and in a real important way, the final judgment provides us urgency to share the gospel. As the apostle Peter wrote to the early church, he addressed the question that, that many of them were getting in a mocking way. Hey, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? What's the holdup? Where's the second coming he promised? And Peter writes this to the early church. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The second coming hasn't happened yet. In part, Paul is, uh, Peter is saying, because Jesus wants more people to receive the, the gift of grace and eternal life. And so our hope, our response, as we stand in Advent and we long for the second coming, that longing should look like we carry in our hearts what King Jesus carries in his heart, a longing for more people to hear about his first coming and second coming and respond in faith. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us view the season in wisdom in a robust, a wider way than we have before. We want to not neglect the celebration of the first coming. Help us celebrate the birth of Christ in ways that are more profound and fitting than we ever have. And, and help us also, as we do that, grow in our longing. Grow in our longing for the good news of the final judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grow in our longing for you to come again. And as we wait and we pray and we walk out obedience that we would boldly forgive and we would boldly proclaim the truth of who you are and what you've done. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen.